Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Title of my message today is What's the Point? What's the Point? Um, this, uh, this last year was my uh, 10th year here at South Hills. And so as a, as a part of that, our senior pastor, Moses, came to me and was like, hey, I'd love for you to take some uh, like elongated time off, take a sabbatical. And uh, it was such a gift uh, from our board. And so we, my family and I stepped away and uh, I realized it's just not my personality to do nothing. And so I did a lot of like things that I found relaxing that other people were like, this just sounds like work. I read a lot of books and I did some home projects and I got really into it, maybe a little too into it. And I sucked my family into that vortex. Anybody else, when you're doing, if you're doing a project in your house, everybody's doing the project. Anybody else like that? And so um, I, I, especially my boys, I'm like, you guys get out here. We had some stuff I wanted to do in the backyard. And it was, I wanted to put in a deck. I wanted to put in uh, some trees. I wanted to put in some sod. Before we could do that, we had to move some dirt around and move some bricks around and things like that. And I'm like, this feels like a job for two little boys. And so I recruited my sons and I was like, here's the task. Here's what you guys are going to do. This is a picture of them uh, not wanting to pose for a picture because they didn't even want to do the project. And so I'm randomly, che- I'm doing my own thing. I'm randomly checking on them doing the thing. Every time I come out, it's, uh, it's like any construction crew anywhere. One guy working, another guy watching that guy work. The guy working being a little bit annoyed, but not knowing how to confront the other guy. And um, the other guy just being like, hey, I was about to do something. You caught me in a weird moment. I'm like, I've been watching you from the window, buddy. And so Cohen's working, Zeke's trying to pretend like he looks like he's working. And eventually I come out and I'm just like, hey, what's going on? And, oh, this is looking good, but you guys need to kind of level out this spot and move some of this dirt over here, whatever. And Cohen's like listening, like he's taking it all in. I can just see Zeke getting so frustrated as I'm explaining what else needs to be done. And he's like, this is gonna take forever. When is this gonna be done? This is never gonna be done. What is the point of all this? We're just moving dirt and then when you move it over here and you tell us we got to move it back over there, we're just going to move it over. You're just milking it. Is this a punishment? And I was like, whoa, okay, slow down, buddy. And he's like, this is, you know what? This is what the Nazis made the Jews do. They made them just move, pointless. They just made them move around dirt and, 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 and bricks in the, in, the, in the prison yard for no reason. And I was like, are you calling me Hitler right now? Like, what is going on? What are they teaching you at school, right? Which is your mom, because you're homeschooled. (laughs) Also, you know what? No more like educational documentaries. This is backfiring. And I realized, I guess he's just like, what is the point of all this? I'm like, I, in my own head, I had like a vision for the backyard and what I wanted to do. And then like all the steps that need to be done to get to that place. But they don't really know that. They don't see that. I hadn't really explained it. I just sort of gave them a task. And so they, they're, they're sort of running blind. And, and I'm like, man, that would sort of feel like torture because they had no idea what was going on. So I had to sort of slow down and tell them the point of like, this is the point of what you're doing in the overall project. And um, it, it helped Cohen to keep working. Zeke was still just like, I don't really want to do this, right? Uh, he's not really one for manual labor. One time we asked him, we're like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Because Cohen had this like outdoor business he wanted to do. And he was like, you know what? I'm more of like a indoor job kind of a kid. 
you know, like an online business in the air conditioning. And I'm like, that feels about right for you. But I would say like, uh, you know, you have been here before, like where you were doing something that felt sort of repetitious and monotonous and it was inconvenient and it was exhausting and you're in the middle of trudging through and you're trying to stay consistent. And there was this thought that sort of crept up in your mind where you're just like, what, what, what is the point? Why am I doing this? Like, why am I putting myself through this? And maybe whatever that thing was, you had this sense that it was something that you were supposed to do or something that you should do, but you didn't really know why. And that got in the way. And maybe it happened with something that somebody asked you to do at work and you're just like, I mean, I'll do it, but what's the point? And you found yourself feeling frustrated about it. Maybe, maybe it, was, it was something that had to do with like a habit that you were pursuing and it was just so, fr- and you're just like, why am I even trying? Maybe it was something that you had to do to maintain a relationship and eventually you're just like, why am I even, this is, no. Like for whatever reason, it just, it stopped making sense. And I think, you know, when we lose sight of why we're doing something, we lose the will to keep doing it especially if it's dull or, or difficult. Like humans, like this is just the way we are. We have a low threshold for monotonously going through the motions. Like we wanna know what all our doing is doing. We don't wanna just pointlessly do stuff. There's this, uh, this verse that I read last week um, when we first started talking about spiritual disciplines and it's something the apostle Paul wrote to this kid that he's mentoring. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse eight, where he says, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. And the whole idea here is that he's reminding us in both like a physical and a spiritual sense, we're gonna have to, you know, make a disciplined effort in order to get where we want to go in life. But here's something that we didn't talk about last week. Training is preparation, right? It's doing with a destination in mind. And preparation without a purpose feels pointless though. And so if we can't attach a purpose to our preparation, the experience becomes senseless. It becomes unsustainable. And you've seen this uh, for people physically. Like we all knew somebody who was, you know, really athletic. They were in super good shape in high school or college because they played some sport. And so they were working out all the time and trying to stay fit so that when it came time for like the game or the match or whatever, that they could go out there and they could achieve the thing that they were working or preparing to achieve. And then like that went away, right? They, they graduated. They got out of it. I mean, people tend to frown on 40-year-olds who are like, hey, could I be a part of this uh, high school wrestling team? And so they didn't have this thing to like aim at anymore, right? And so they're just sort of like, what's the point? Like the purpose for the preparation evaporated and they sort of let themselves go. And when you circle back and you bumped into them at the grocery store, you're like, whoa, wow, things have, have changed a little bit for you and you're trying not to stare, but you are, you know, you know how you are. And this happens to us spiritually too, right? If we lose sight of why we're practicing particular spiritual disciplines, we, we lose the will to do it. And so why, why prioritize these things in, in our life? Why have any sort of, you know, religious practice or routine? Like why have something that you're doing on a regular basis to sort of cultivate your spirit? Like what's the point? What is it doing? And Jesus was asked this question one time, and this was his reply to that. 
In Matthew chapter 22, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Like he's like, it boils down, like all of the things that you could do to maintain your spiritual life, it really boils down to this singular why. In other words, what he's saying here is any rhythm or routine is only as beneficial as its ability to empower you to love God and others well. That's the point. If it's not doing that, it's in the way. But, and so we should gravitate in our lives and put things into practice that are pushing us to this end and we should stay focused on the why. But we need things in our lives that actually cultivate both of these things because if you don't do both of these things, if you focus all on one and not the other, life becomes imbalanced and you lose the ability to do either. Like if all you do is serve other people, but you don't care for your own soul. We all know people who've done this, right? You become depleted and angry and bitter and you start feeling used and burnt out and taken advantage of. But if on the flip side, right, all you do is self-care, but you never serve the people around you, you become self-focused and narcissistic and judgmental and oftentimes very depressed because life is not all about you. And this is why, like, it, when we're, if we decide to have a conversation about the spiritual disciplines, we can't stop at just talking about the inward disciplines like we did last week, right? These ideas of, of prayer and study and meditation and fasting, these things that really aim our lives at loving God well by embracing his love for us. We have to move past that. We have to talk about outward disciplines as well. We have to talk about these things that we put in practice in our lives to cultivate our love for other people. And so I wanna just spend our, the rest of our time today talking about like, what are these things? And you know, how do you put them into practice? Why do you do them? What do they create in you? And the first one, uh, the first uh, of the outward disciplines is something called solitude. And solitude is taking a break from busyness and noisiness to slowly and silently ground your soul in God. I think it's really interesting that so many of us feel anxious and nervous and overstimulated and overscheduled and overwhelmed, but we also don't want to have to sit still. Have you noticed this about yourself? You're like, ah, oh, there's too much going on. And I just like, I don't even know what I'm doing. And should I even be doing all this? And it's just like so much. And people are like, you should slow down. You should calm down. You should center and ground your life. And you're like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> so, so ironic. Now, when this idea first took hold of human history, it was during a time that was pre-technology, right? So in ancient people's minds, solitude looked like stepping out into nature by yourself, moving your body, breathing the air, moving away from chatter and conversation and the demands of life and the expectations of others. And today we would add on top of that in our current culture, uh, moving away from the pinging of phones and the immediacy of the internet and the hum of traffic and the unspoken, uh, unbroken buzz of podcasts and news and movies and shows and games and social media. Even me just saying that, some of you are like, my chest is tightening right now. <laughs> It's not COVID, it is, it is anxiety. Like, 
It's a lot, right? It can be nerve wracking. So why don't we just like move away from it? Because it's also familiar, which is strangely comforting. And so sometimes we don't want to disconnect what we're used to, even though it's not working for you. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, the, the power went out in our house. It was like nine at night. We'd already put our kids to bed because we believe in that, like get in bed early so your mom and I can hang out, okay? And so we put them in bed. The power went out. Like I walk out in the living room, so I'm trying to figure out what's going on. All the kids are like poked out of their rooms and they're like standing in the hallway. And, and so, you know, Gretchen looks up on her phone and the power grid went out, whatever. It's going to be this long. And so I'm like, cool guys, we're going to put a couple candles. If you need to go to the bathroom, you're going to like bump into something, get a concussion. Um, but you go back to bed, like it's going to be fine. So we tucked them all back in, prayed with them. We went back to our room. I'm like reading a book by a candle. You know what I mean? And, um, and one by one, over the next half hour, each of our kids end up like tiptoeing into our room, right? They all end up coming in and they're all just like, I can't, I can't go to sleep. I, can I just lay in here? And uh, instantly I'm like, no. And their mom's like, yes. And so I'm like, oh. so y'all crawl in and they're all, so our bed is like, you know, over the next half hour, three kids, two cats, you know what I mean? Everyone's snuggling. I'm falling off the bed with my candle. And I'm just like, okay, you know what, guys, that's it. You just, you're going to have to go to bed. You can't all just wait in here. And one of my kids was just like, we can't, we can't go to sleep. It's too quiet. It's creepy in here. I need a little bit of noise. Like I need a little bit of something or I can't go to sleep. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. But in my own head, I'm like, me too. You know what I mean? This is weird. Because it is weird. We're not used to it, right? There's always the hum or buzz of something sort of keeping us occupied. And so why would we, why would we want to do this, right? Like, why are we encouraged over and over again in scripture and throughout Christian history to seek solitude? I think it's because certain things only surface when you're still. I wonder if you've noticed this, that, you know, when you're still, things rise up that you've been ignoring, that you hadn't been thinking about, that you weren't in tune with, things about your schedule, about your body, things about your relationships. You know, for some of us, it's, this is why we avoid it, right? We're afraid of what might bubble up if we get too still. And that's why we just keep going and moving and pushing and doing all the time. Because it's not until we stop doing that we can actually gain perspective on who we are and what it is we need to address or maybe even adjust in order to live life to the full. You know, I, I think deep down, all of us want guidance from God. But the question that solitude introduces to us is like, what if God is trying to connect with and direct you almost all the time, but you can't hear what he's saying because the rest of your life is too loud? Because this is what scripture indicates. And so we need moments like daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, where we can sort of pull away from the busyness and the noisiness and just sort of sit with God and breathe and notice things that come up in our soul about who we are, maybe what we need to address. We get this sort of gut level um, picture, this divine clarity when we experience solitude about what isn't isn't working in our life. And I think it shines a light on what rhythms and routines we may need to start submitting to, to become, you know, for you to become the best version of you. And that actually brings us to this, this next idea, uh, submission. Um, just because like, it's well, let's just do the trigger word right off the top, right? 
Like when we talk about the, the, the discipline of submission, a lot of us, we can't even hear this word without feeling angry or without feeling like we're gonna throw up a little bit inside of our mouths, right? Because a lot of what comes up for us when we hear this word, we envision like people misusing power, right? We envision um, a manipulative cult. We envision some stern religious figure telling women just to do what they're told and not ask any questions and not have, you know, opinions. But this is a perversion of this idea. And I want to give you an accurate definition of what the discipline of submission actually is. Submission is voluntarily deferring to a person, place, or practice, pre-deciding to inconvenience yourself in a particular way to achieve something or become someone. And some of you are like, wow, that is way broader. It makes a lot more sense than maybe what I was raised with. And you know, I want to just sort of help you separate this idea from unhealthy forced authoritarianism because that's really not what is meant by this idea. I think like when you start to peel this apart, you already agree with the idea of submission and practice it and desire it in your own life. Like some examples of how you may live this out. You may submit to the, like the process of an eating plan right? Because you're trying to get healthy, even though your body craves sugar, uh, you're submitted to the plan that you drew up so that you can get to where you want to go, right? You may submit to the house rules of another family because you're on their turf, you're visiting them, right? And you're just like, I'm not really like a take my shoes off and expose my smelly feet type of a person, but that's what they do here. And I want to be respectful of this environment. And so I'm going to submit to these house rules, right? You may submit to the advice that you solicit from a mentor, about a situation. And even though your gut feeling is sort of pulling you in a different direction, they have more perspective, more experience, more insight because they've had more experiences than you. And so you submit to those, those words of wisdom that they give you. Or maybe you submit to the value of forgiveness, even though that person stabbed you in the back and you just want to be angry all the time and get revenge. But there's something bigger that you bow to. And ultimately, this is what submission is. Submission is arranging your life around something more important and more stable than whatever feelings and impulses you have in the moment. So why would we do this, right? Why would we submit to certain people or places or practices? Because transformation is dependent upon submission meaning that you are going to have to do some things that you don't want to do now in order to develop yourself into the type of person that you want to be or are called to be later. So we submit. Now, obviously, this could apply to a lot of different things. So of all the areas that we could defer to something in, what is the most important, the most essential? And this is Paul's suggestion. Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means essentially this, that, that instead of just doing what you wanna do, commit to living in extreme consideration of the thoughts, feelings, experiences, perspectives, and preferences of other people. Like defer to them, even when you don't want to, out of your love 
and respect for Jesus. In other words, don't do this for them because they always do it for you. Do it for them because Jesus did and does this for you. That Jesus took, took in and takes into consideration, extreme consideration, your thoughts and feelings and experiences and perspectives and preferences. That's what love in action looks like. Pay it forward. And I think a lot of us want to live this way, but we feel like, honestly, I just don't have the time, the energy, or the money to be all that considerate, right? I mean, that, that sounds a little callous, but I think if we're honest, a lot of us are in this space, right? Like, I am too busy, right? Trying to just like stay on top of all the things I have going on. I don't have time to be considerate of everything that you've got going on. And this is why this, this third spiritual discipline becomes really necessary for us to practice in order to love others well. It's something called simplicity, simplicity. And simplicity is refusing to live like something more, bigger, or new will fix or fulfill you. Maybe you're looking at this and you're just like, so everything opposite of what our Western culture tells us, right? So everything that is like the opposite of advertising, right? Like what are we told by our culture that like, in, you can't be happy unless you have a packed fridge and a packed closet and a packed schedule and a six pack of beer and abs. Okay, you need both of them, which is weird because they, they combat each other. You know what I mean? But this is what simplicity is. Simplicity is rebelling against being a materialistically minded approval junkie. And you know what, what, what simplicity sounds like? It sounds like being able to say this and genuinely mean it. This is something that the apostle Paul wrote to one of the early churches about his experience um, like following Jesus. He says this in Philippians chapter four, verse 11. He says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. Then he says this, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, a lot of you probably know that verse. You're like, I didn't know that's where it went. Right? I think a lot of times, I think this is one of the most taken out of context verses in all of scripture, right? We want to like pull it out and just apply it to other things that it doesn't really mean, right? Uh, you know, we're, someone's just like, I'm going to be a professional singer. And you're just like, mm, I don't know about that. You have a horrible voice. And they're just like, I can do all things with, through Christ who strengthens me. And it's like, mm, maybe not all things. I mean, I don't know. Strengthen you with some auto-tune. I don't know. You don't have... I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just trying to be realistic about, you know, where you're at in life. And I mean, you can go on the show. People are just going to laugh. It's going to be weird. Okay. Maybe get some lessons and then still not do it, you know. <laughs> but but what, what this is saying in context is the power of God is so strong that it can actually enable you to do the most difficult thing in the entire universe. Learn to live with less. And we don't want to hear that. We're like, I don't want the verse to mean that. Like, because our thought is just like, well, I could never, I could never live without that. 
Okay, I could never downsize this part of my life. I mean, I just, I can't do it. And, and what, what the writer is saying here is like, listen, the power of God is so immense that even you can experience a full life and joy in your existence by doing something unexpected, downsizing on purpose. You can do that, but only if God helps you. Now, those that embrace simplicity, one thing I've noticed is that they tend to live open-handed because they, they sort of think in a, a particular way. They believe at their core that everything I have is all God's anyway. And so however God directs me to use it, like I'm willing to do that because it just doesn't belong to me. Like I'm, I'm just a steward. I'm just the handler of his resources. They also believe that like everything I have is more than enough to find and experience joy in. That I don't need to get more stuff, achieve more stuff, find more things, right? Like I don't need to buy more in order to be happy. I can look around and find uh, like everything I already have, everything God has already given me is plenty to find joy in the midst of. And they also believe that everything I have isn't just for me. Like I don't have... Uh, everything that I have just so that I can be blessed, but so that I can be a blessing to other people. And this is why, you know, here at our church, we encourage people to practice generosity, to have a giving practice on an ongoing basis. Because when you commit to give something away, you're required to give something up. In other words, like you can't live generously without practicing simplicity, Right? You have to actually make an intentional decision to, to downsize your life, to not spend every last dime or more than what you actually have and go into debt. You actually have to shrink the size of what you're spending and live simply and acknowledge that it's God's and, like, and find joy in the midst so that you can give some of what you have away to bless other people's lives. And what's crazy about it is when we commit to this, often the person that gets the most blessed is us because we realize that this like sort of like this hamster wheel that advertising had us running on was all a big lie. But loving people is not just about giving them or giving away your, your money, right? There are other things that our, our actions have to align with to go beyond that. And, and you already know this because we all had this friend when we were growing up whose parents were divorced and the dad was never around, but he like bought them everything. And they had like all the cool toys and video game systems and everything that you didn't get. And I remember this kid who like, it was right around the time that like He-Man was a big deal. And he had like all the action figures. He had the castle, okay? He like, he, like every imaginable thing, right? He had the tiger with the moving parts. It was amazing. And I was like so jealous. And he's just kind of like, eh. Because for him, it was a, it was a trade-off. It was a bribe. It was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend money on you so I don't have to spend any time and energy or attention on you. And so the generosity felt like an insult instead of a gift. Because in, in order to actually love people well, uh, there's more that we, we need to, to give and to sacrifice and invest than just our, our financial resources. And this brings us to the idea of service the discipline of service, which is leveraging your time, energy, and effort to benefit someone else. 
And unfortunately in our culture, you know, we want to be seen helping more than we actually want to help. Have you noticed this? Right? Like we, we, we want to get credit for having done something helpful. Um, we want other people to admire us and, and to, to be proud of us and to like, like uh, the thing that we did. But service is just a means to an end. And the end is acknowledgement, admiration, and the applause of other people. But this is not the Christ-centered service that Scripture talks about. And yet we can easily sort of veer off into this territory without even knowing it. Like, how would you know if you are serving maybe for the wrong reasons, right? Maybe if you only want to do stuff that's like people think is a big deal. If you only want to do things that are, you know, celebrated and reciprocated. If you only want to serve in ways that benefit people that you think really deserve it. If you only want to serve like when you're in the mood to do so but not on a consistent basis. Like if you only want to serve um, in doing what you want to do, but not actually what needs to be done. These are red flags. You know how early Christians saw service? They often defined it as something called active helpfulness, which they took to mean assisting others with what's necessary, yet lowly, thankless, and mundane. Now, the, the classic Jesus example of this sort of thing is uh, washing the disciples' feet, right? Like, this is a culture where they're walking everywhere, they're barefoot or in sandals, and their feet are being caked with dirt and sweat and manure. And it's a lowly servant's job to, like, walk around the room with a towel around your waist and clean and, and scrape the gunk off of the feet of the other people there. And Jesus is noted for having done this. Like if we want to update it into our context, we want to put it in the context of our church, it would look like things like cleaning toilets or serving in kids ministry with like the ADHD kids, okay? Like it looked like maybe showing up early, like getting up early on a Sunday and showing up early to help with like setup before everybody else gets here to enjoy the hard work you put in and didn't even know it was you. And I could list more things, but like just with these three things, probably all of us can identify one of them that feels like the worst thing ever. We're just like, I don't want to do that thing. And what the, the, the early Christ followers believed is that, you know, the more you want to like hate the idea of serving in a particular way is the more evidence that you maybe should try serving in that way. Because when it comes to active helpfulness, the less you want to and the less people expect it from you, the more powerful it is when you do. And the more powerful it is, not just for them, but for you. It's powerful because they're like, wow, I never thought they would do this. And so like being served by someone who doesn't have to serve in that way, like communicates worth and value in a powerful way. But also when you serve in a way that you know, like you don't really technically have to, but you're, you're doing because you are, you love God, you love the place, you love your community, you want to communicate that through action. It requires a certain amount of humility that right sizes and grounds your life. But here is the inconvenient truth about all four of these things. They don't do anything if you don't do them. Isn't that annoying, right? And, and spiritual training is a lot like physical training in this way. Like if you know how to eat right and like what exercises to do 
and you got like the cute gym outfit and the perfect shoes, right? That you went to the set and you measured and it's like for your stride and you got the water bottle and you got all the stuff and you know how to do all the stuff, but you don't do it. It doesn't mean anything. It's not gonna help you. You have to actually follow through. And this is why spiritual disciplines are often called practices because they only transform you through regular repetition. You have to grab hold and frequently repeat the action in order to get the benefits from it. James, the the brother of Jesus, said it this way. He said, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. And we all know people that are fooling themselves in different areas of their life. I see them at the gym I go to all the time. They're like, man, I've been coming here a lot and I'm, you know, it's like, I'm not really getting in shape. I'm like, that's because you're just texting on the bench. You had to do the actual workout. You don't get credit for checking in. That's not how it works. You have to practice the exercise. And, and what I think James is saying here is that some learning only comes through doing. Like there are things that we access experientially, not intellectually. There are things that you can't really know until you do. And you've experienced this that some, in some way in your own life, right? Where someone was like, oh, you should do this. You should do this. And you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then you did it and you're like, whoa, that really did make a difference. Or where someone was trying to prep you for how difficult something was going to be. They're going to be like, I mean, like, seriously, like, you know, <laughs> when you guys have that baby, like, you are not going to get any sleep. It's going to be crazy. You're going to want to kill each other, right? Um, and you're just like, yeah, whatever. We're good. And then, like, you know, two days in, you're just like, we're going to kill each other, okay? Someone needs to give us a break. Or, you know, something bad's going to happen, okay? Because once you got in the midst of it, you realized how difficult it really was. There's certain types of knowing that can only be experienced through doing. And so my challenge to you on a spiritual level today is to make a commitment to attend, to serve, and to give on a regular basis. Now, why would I ask you to do that? Because I think it is the simplest way for you to practice submission, simplicity, and service right where you are right now. Now, some of you are looking at this and you're like, of course you want us to do these things. Like, you're the pastor here. So you're like, yeah, I can see why you would want us to do that. That would help you. But here's the thing. I say that the person that really stands to be helped most by you committing to these things is you. And you can't know that until you step in and begin to do this. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, is this the only way that you can learn these ideas of simplicity and and service and submission? No. There are a million ways you could potentially learn how to to know and experience and get the benefits of these things. But the reason why I'm giving you something specific is because sometimes being able to choose anything becomes our excuse for not committing to a specific thing. We're just like, oh, I don't need to do that because, I mean, you could do it like this. And it's like, yeah, you could do it like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not gonna do that either, but like, I could, right? And for some of us, it's, it's pushing back because we don't like to be told what to do, right? We don't like the focus being narrowed. But here's the thing. Until you start practicing, you're not gonna make any progress. And you can't begin a practice until you zero in on something specific. You have to choose a path. 
the thing that you actually commit to and carry out right now is way more valuable in your life than the thing that you're sort of conjuring behind the scenes that you never get around to. What, what would it look like for you to zero in and commit? I'll tell you, it's gonna be difficult, but it's not pointless because these practices empower you to love God and others well. And that's really where joy comes from. When we feel at peace with God, when we feel at peace with other people, when our life has purpose because we're serving others and we're living simply and we're contributing to the lives of other people, when we have clarity on who we are and who God is and what our life is about, when we are submitted to practices and processes, and yeah, even some people in our lives that are guiding us in the best way to live, we get the most out of existence. So I wanna encourage you to remind yourself of the why and stay the course. And we have created um, some tools here this weekend to sort of help you dip a toe in if some of these things are new for you or you don't know where to start. And the first thing is something out on the, the plaza that you may have seen when you came in. There's this giant sort of billboard thing and it says, find your fit on it. And uh, what our team did is we compiled all of the, the serving positions that exist here at South Hills. And you're gonna see the ones on our campus that, are, that we need and the ones that we already have. And I wanna encourage you to drop by and just stare at that board and to look at it, to talk to one of our, our staff members, our volunteers that are there, and to look into maybe what you could do. How can you give your time and your energy and your attention to your spiritual community in a way that's gonna help them, but also help you be who you're designed to be? Um, and, you know, just going out there and looking at what we have is not like a commitment, like we're not gonna trap you in, like, okay, now this next seven years. No, you're under contract, right? It's just this, like, I want more information. I'd love to have coffee with the leader of this ministry, maybe find out what it looks like, maybe sort of observe and, and meet some of the people. Um, that's where it begins, but we don't know to do that with you if you don't let us know where your interests lie. And um, the, the second tool that we've created is a little card that we put on your chairs there's also a link in our link tree. If you go to our Instagram, um, there's a drop-down menu there that you can get access to a, a digital form of this too. But we do something a couple times a year called a 90-day giving challenge. And essentially, we so believe in the discipline of giving um, to, your, uh, to God through your local church that we've created a sort of a system for you to do this risk-free. Sometimes it's like, man, it feels intimidating to think about setting aside part of the money that you're used to spending on you to simplify your life and to give that money to your spiritual community and let them do something with it that will meet the needs of other people. And that, that feels sort of crazy sometimes. And, but we still believe that it will transform not just us, but you, that we invite you to, to sign up to do this so that we can encourage you every step of the way and hold you accountable to your commitment, to your goals um, during these 90 days. And if at the end of that time period, you're just like, this is not, this did not help me. This did not make my life better. I'm not experiencing any more joy, any more closeness to God. Um, we will give you all of the money that you gave during those 90 days back to you because we so believe that it will transform your life but there's no way for you to know this intellectually. You have to step in and know it experientially. And so we wanna give you sort of a risk-free way to do that, to see that, that what we're saying is real and true. I wanna encourage you as you move forward through this year to prioritize 
attending, serving, and giving. Because I'm telling you, these things will transform you. They'll enable you to love God and other people in the way that you were designed to. And life will begin to feel as it should. That's what I want for you. I think that's what God wants for you. Would you bow your heads around this room? I just want to pray this into your life today. God, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you for the way in which you show us how to live, how to move forward, how to get the most out of our existence. But God, we don't want to just be people who, who hear the words that you're speaking to us, who, who see the truth that you're revealing to us and just sort of nod our heads and think that it's a great idea. We wanna be people that actually practice the things that you're revealing to us so that we can get the experiential benefits of stepping into your way of living. God, I pray that as we practice solitude and as we practice submission and simplicity and service, that these things would begin to train our lives to love others naturally, yet instinctually, just like you do. That as we submit to these processes, that you would make us more like you. And as we become more like you, God, may it transform the way we see ourselves, the way we see other people, and the way we see the world. Give us the courage to do what you are asking of us so we can become who you've designed us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.